It's Wednesday, July 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Baseball has been having a rough go as they began their 60-game season amid the pandemic. MLB has paused the 2020 season for the Miami Marlins after an outbreak of COVID-19 among players and staff. One big issue for them is the misalignment between the playing schedule, testing schedule, and protocols for what happens in between. Louise Radnovsky, sports reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, the workplace of the Ellen DeGeneres show is under investigation by Warner Media after some reports of a toxic work culture and crew furious over poor communication during the coronavirus shutdown. There have not been any direct allegations made about Ellen herself. Matt Donnelly, senior film writer at Variety, joins us for bad news at the Ellen show. Finally, one of the main symptoms for many that get COVID-19 is losing their sense of smell. Scientists now know why that happens, and the good news is it's only temporary. SARS-CoV-2 attacks the cells that support smell-detecting neurons, and because they don't actually attack the neurons themselves, people usually recover after a few weeks. Elizabeth Weiss, national correspondent at USA Today, joins us for why the coronavirus attacks your sense of smell. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I don't put this in the nightmare category. I mean, obviously, we don't want any player to get exposed. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not a positive thing, but I don't see it as a nightmare. We built the protocols to allow us to continue to play. Joining us now is Louise Radnovsky, sports reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Louise. Thank you for having me. Wanted to talk about baseball in the time of coronavirus. They just got their 60-game season underway, and it's already run into a whole mess of problems. The Miami Marlins season was paused by Major League Baseball amid an outbreak of COVID-19. I think they had 15 players and two staff members that tested positive. I think it's been paused at least through Sunday as of now. That could all change, and you know we'll have to see if any more players on the Marlins or any other teams that they might have come in contact with test positive. But this is kind of exposing a lot of holes in their return to work strategy. Louise, you wrote a story about how the scheduling is all off on everything. Their playing schedule, the testing schedule, and then the protocols for what happens in between. Tell us about it. I think it's helpful to compare what's happening in baseball to something that people have seen in action for a number of weeks now, which is the bubble model. Baseball's protocols are somewhat the opposite of the bubble. They're playing a very long season, shorter than usual, but still a very long season relative to the one month that folks, for example, in the National Soccer League were in a bubble in Utah. They're playing a long season. They're playing a lot of games in that season, very close together. They're moving around a lot. And they're also testing. They're not testing as frequently as folks inside the bubble are testing, which is every day. In some cases, using a laboratory that's very close by that they can drive the results to and get relatively quickly. They are shipping, instead in baseball, their results to labs in Salt Lake City or in New Jersey, and it can take up to 48 hours for results to come back. They're also testing every other day. So what you had in the case of the Marlins and actually in the case of the Washington Nationals on the very opening game of opening day is a situation in which you can have players going out onto the field without knowing what their status is at that time, including in the case of the Nationals, knowing that one of their teammates had tested positive from a test taken two days earlier. They just learned the results of the morning of Thursday when opening day was due to start. 
And what happens with all this, it makes this complicated contact tracing assignment for people, especially just going with the Marlins situation. They've played already in three cities, Miami, Atlanta, and Philadelphia over the past 10 days, and they have to go back to see where it all started. What you have in the bubble is a scenario in which if somebody tests positive, you know relatively quickly, you can isolate them. And what you've seen in the bubble is there have been some number of positive tests and the number has fallen over time to zero. What you've seen in four days of baseball is the exact opposite. You learn two days later that somebody tested positive, And by that time, the team could be in an entirely different city to the one they were in before, playing an entirely different team where the team that they've just played has gone on to play another team as well. So that's all making for a very troubling scenario. If you believe that the field is where transmission is occurring, even if it's not, then you've got a scenario where the clubhouses really come under particular scrutiny and neither scenario is good. In some ways, this outbreak being confined to one team is the better of two scenarios for baseball. You know, in a 60-game schedule, how do you catch up? There's already been a bunch of postponed games. The teams are going to have to play multiple games in a day, possibly, or, or, you know, throughout the week or whatever. Can it become too unwieldy for MLB to catch up? From an infectious disease standpoint, the important part of catching up is how you halt things in their tracks to stop them from spreading further. So while baseball is wondering things like how do you catch up with the calendar, there's also a question of how you catch up with the contact tracing and the testing schedule going forward. What's clear is what what's being implemented with Marlins does give the folks who are working on the infectious disease side some opportunity to stop, assess where people are at before they move further, which just makes this an even harder target to pin down in terms of finding out who's infectious and who's not before they have a chance to infect too many other people. Obviously, the logistics are a nightmare when it comes to something like this. So many games, obviously, the teams might be a little bit bigger than a NBA team. But why did they choose not to go with some type of bubble situation? The size of the roster was a huge part of it. They didn't think that they could find the location or locations necessary that were big enough to put all of those people in a closed system. On top of that, they were looking at doing that for months as opposed to weeks which is also a difficult thing to sustain for a period of time, even with the cooperation of the people in the bubble. And what they didn't have was that cooperation because players didn't want to leave their families for months at a time to be sequestered. Has there been any reaction from the Marlins, from MLB at large, just saying something more than just these pauses? Well, what we've heard from MLB is that they don't think that this is a terrible situation. In fact, specifically the phrase used by the commissioner on MLB Network on Monday night was that this isn't a nightmare scenario. They think the protocols that they have in place are effective and that they are doing what they need to do to keep players as safe as possible, which is not a standard of nobody gets infected. It's a standard of we believe we can control or limit outbreaks, not necessarily even to one team. There is a scenario they envision in which a team loses so many players to infection that they become non-competitive and that team might have to drop out of competition. But they don't see a scenario in which right now this is going to lead to them shutting down the season and they don't see that the protocols they presumably continue to intend to use are going to cause that kind of problem later in the season either. Luis Rednovsky, sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. People have been with her some of the entire 17-year run of the show. 
just expected a better level of treatment in terms of if and when they would come back. You know, and up until the moment we published our report, that legacy crew was told to sort of expect dramatically reduced compensation, even though the show was going on filming at the normal rate. Joining us now is Matt Donnelly, senior film writer at Variety. Thanks for joining us, Matt. My pleasure. There's some interesting news out of the Ellen DeGeneres show. The show has become the subject of an internal investigation by Warner Media. This is after there was a bunch of different accounts of workplace problems on the show. There was some reporting by you guys there at Variety about some confusion over pay and hours in the early days of the pandemic. And after shutdowns were happening, BuzzFeed had a story about racist behavior, microaggressions, and a bunch of other things. Matt, start us off by telling us what we know about this investigation. So essentially, Human Resources representatives from both the production company that makes Ellen, which is called Telepictures, and Warner Brothers, which obviously airs the program or distributes it, have both come together in sort of pursuit of information about just sort of the day-to-day experience for Ellen's employees. In a memo we obtained, they sort of referenced these stories and said that their goal is to ultimately create a work environment where everyone is sort of protected and also can sort of advance and flourish in safety. So I think it's a pretty responsible move on their part. But at this point, what we know is that they're reaching out to current and former employees to discuss their experiences, where presumably they'll conduct a larger report about what, if anything, needs to change there. Let's talk about these two reports just to kind of see what we're working with here. Back in April, Variety reported on the treatment of crew members during the coronavirus lockdown. So very loosely When things initially shut down, there was crew members who were saying that we weren't really being told what was going to be the fate of our hours or our pay. And then when Ellen resumed some sort of filming at her home, they were kind of left out of the lurch on that, too. And I guess they hired some non-union workers to do that work instead of them. A lot of the um, sources we spoke with who were familiar with the production basically say that her long-term crew, people have been with her some of the entire 17-year run of the show, just expected a better level of treatment in terms of if and when they would come back. You know, and up until the moment we published our report, that legacy crew was told to sort of expect dramatically reduced compensation, even though the show was going on filming at the normal rate. So I think a lot of people felt sort of betrayed in a way by mixed messages, especially for someone whose banner, banner saying for her show is to be kind. And some say this is very difficult situations, obviously, in the confusion and chaos of the coronavirus pandemic that hit. And in some ways, it makes sense to maybe hire those non-union workers because they have to do something, maybe things that the union might not have agreed for their workers, depending on safety and all that. So sometimes those things make sense, but they were just saying that they weren't even afforded that choice or whatnot. Yeah, I think it was a lack of transparency that really got to people. And yes, you know, coronavirus has, has caused such a dramatic ripple effect in how we do or more specifically how we don't do production at this moment. So yeah, the union might have to look the other way occasionally on just getting some people back to work instead of, you know, sort of a massive shutdown. But yeah, again, I think it was that sort of lack of care that really got to some long-term employees. Yeah, and the pay was also an issue. I know they told them you're going to get reduced hours or reduced pay that way. But shortly after you guys posted your story, then it started coming out, well, well, they're going to get paid their full amount, their full pay, all that stuff. I think that the production sort of realized what the right thing to do was, especially because if you follow the logic through, if they were taping the same amount of episodes, that means that this is going into syndicated viewership and selling the same amount of advertising. No one's really losing money on the end. It's just obviously out of an abundance of caution here to figure out how to actually make the show. 
But, you know, again, it, I think Hollywood is a town that when you're established the way that Ellen is and you've got, you know, a, a working family, as some people put it to me, over 17 years, they expect you to cover them the way they've covered you. So I think that was a large part of the frustration. And, you know, another thing that was in that same report was that, you know, no one had even checked in and said, how are you? How are your family? How's right. your mental health? Which I think a lot of companies, you know, including the publisher of Variety, a lot of people did do that, you know, and say, we're here for you if you need resources, if you need childcare, if you need meditation class, <laughs> you know, any number of things to sort of band together in a really unprecedented and highly stressful time. A lot of people thought that that wasn't done and were quite surprised. The other part of this, in mid-July, BuzzFeed published a report alleging a toxic work culture there. There was an employee who said that there was some racist behavior going around and a few other things that just really made working there on the show not really tolerable. The BuzzFeed report has a sort of a spectrum of accused behavior that is troubling from just to start a sort of an onset atmosphere of intimidation and fear. You know, there were some accounts of verbal abuse. There were accounts of sort of, you know, uh, an idea that overall senior leadership at Ellen felt that, you know, it was a privilege to work there. And anyone who might complain about sort of the emotional atmosphere, or even working conditions could just move on because they can find anyone else who would die to work for Ellen. To much more serious stuff, like specifically with people of color on the set, from jokes about two African-American females being mistaken for each other because they have the same hairstyle, to another employee being sort of shouted down as angry and resentful because she suggested that the entire staff receive diversity and inclusion training. You know, all this was reported in the BuzzFeed story, and it's quite serious, especially, I would say, in the world we live in, which is a post-Me Too world. And if you even look at what's been happening in this country in the past two months, there is an incredibly justifiable demand for a lack of this toxicity and for transparency around how we're all treating each other at work. Now, one thing that I found interesting is that there's no specific allegations about Ellen DeGeneres herself, but we mm -hmm. have seen a lot of different reports, anecdotal stuff, where people were saying, you know, Ellen herself is difficult to work with, or she's mean on set, mean to her workers as well, things like that. But that has nothing to do with these reports that we know of right now. In the BuzzFeed report, it was mentioned just sort of, you know, how she is as a figurehead on the show. And, and a lot of the things that are said about her are, are nothing that you wouldn't hear about any other sort of figure in show business that looms as large as she does. Don't make eye contact, avoid her or, or duck if she's coming down the hall, respect her space, like that kind of thing, which I think is sort of par for the course. And I can very confidently say I've heard through my own sources the same anecdotes. But then, you know, also that that has some other more serious consequences. If Ellen is receiving information from only a few people and how she's processing the day-to-day -day operation of the show is filtered, that can create blind spots. I think anyone could argue that. Matt Donnelly, senior film writer at Variety. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. What's happening is that the virus doesn't attack the olfactory sensory neurons themselves, but it attacks the cells that support them. And that's actually really good news. Joining us now is Elizabeth Weiss, national correspondent at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. You're welcome. From the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, and as we learn more, we've always heard about all the different symptoms that this illness, this COVID-19 is very particular in parts of the body that it affects for different people. It, as they've been saying, it's the novel coronavirus. We're learning about it as we go. And one of the interesting symptoms about this whole thing was people were losing their sense of smell. And nobody knew why for a long time why that would happen. Scientists now know why people are losing their sense of smell. And there's good news in all of this. 
that loss appears to be just temporary. Elizabeth, tell us some more about this. Yeah, so a group of scientists based at Harvard, though there were actually international people involved in this, had been trying to figure out what the SARS-CoV-2 virus was specifically doing to the cells that allow us to smell. And it had been originally thought that maybe there was some sort of inflammation right around the olfactory sensory neurons, and that was causing it. Then later, it was thought that perhaps the virus actually infected these neurons themselves and damaged or destroyed them, and that's why people were losing their smell. But last week, they published a paper in which they were able to show that, in fact, what's happening is that the virus doesn't attack the olfactory sensory neurons themselves, but it attacks the cells that support them. And that's actually really good news because those cells, the cells that support our smell neurons, can regenerate. And so you don't lose your sense of smell forever. You just lose it for a while as they regenerate. And that actually turns out to be really important because you might not think of it, but there are some diseases that connect permanently damage a person's sense of smell, as can certain head injuries. And it's a huge thing for people. If you lose your sense of smell, you lose a lot of your sense of taste. It can lead to weight problems. It can lead to depression. So it was good news that these will grow back. And now we actually have a sense of what's happening. I think even in that research, they pointed to other coronaviruses. And as you mentioned, other things where people lose their sense of smell In some of those instances, that can take months to regain their sense of smell. And luckily with this, they say over the course of several weeks, you'll probably get it back. I actually had a colleague at work who had COVID-19, lost his sense of smell. And it was a few weeks later, we asked him, how are you feeling with the smell and all? He's like, oh, it's kind of coming back. He's like, things smell a little like onions, maybe. Like, So (laughs) he, he was still all messed up from it, but at least it was kind of coming back. You know, health records indicate that COVID-19 patients are 27 more times likely to have smell loss as opposed to having fever, cough, or other respiratory difficulty. They're saying that the sense of smell is probably a better indicator or at least an earlier indicator than some of those other symptoms. I think that was a really telling point, or it is a really telling point, and it reminds us how new this virus is and how little that we know about it and how much we've learned in seven or eight short months. I mean, originally... I remember I helped write the story where like, oh, you know, some people get COVID may potentially lose their sense of smell. Now it actually turns out it's a better predictor than fever or cough. So scientists all over the world are working hard to gather data so that we understand the natural course of this. And we still probably don't because it's only been seven months that, you know, maybe things happen a year or two out. We don't know yet. They're saying it's a a very good thing that it actually doesn't directly infect the neurons but it's kind of confirming other things, that it continues to be this sort of vascular disease affecting blood vessels more so than this respiratory disease. Correct. And there was interesting data out this week that there are long-term heart issues that can be caused by the virus, for example, which might not be the first thing you would think of. Then it turns out you're going to have heart issues a year later. Elizabeth Weiss, national correspondent at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. You're so welcome. Take care. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.